This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And together, as always, with us is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Max? I'm good, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, today we've got Matt Smith. And Matt, uh, well, essentially was doing a, a degree in mechanical engineering material science at Georgia Tech. And he turned that into, well, developing a something called Ice Nime which is actually a, a set of conductive materials for 3D printing at the time. And they made conductive filament. Now, as we know, most conductive filament uh, that was made for 3D printing wasn't actually very conductive, uh, especially not in the printed part. And uh, Matt uh, had a, a pretty interesting incubator, which will tell us a lot about, I think, uh, to get to make, make sure all of the, the stuff he learned in his PhD came, uh, uh, was used very well in the technology, and, and then ended up you know, commercializing this, this, this filament. Now, what I think is also quite interesting is that Matt then subsequently SN ended up commercializing also the X panel, which is an ener- uh, energy recovery uh, kind of solution, which is away from 3D printing. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of our, our things where we're, we're saying, hey, you know what, there's more than 3D printing out there for the technology. And also maybe, you know, for some people, it makes a lot more sense to, to pump, uh, to pivot away to, to pumps and other kind of more applications away from 3D printing. So I thought that was really interesting as well. So welcome uh, to the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. And I'm uh, you know, looking forward to telling you more about our story. So first off, like, okay, so you're doing a PhD in material science. How come you guys end up getting the idea of, of well, how did you end up with like the, the like commercializing a product out of just your PhD? Commercialization was something I was always interested in going into my graduate studies. I actually saw grad school as a way to continue to develop technologies and simultaneously own the technologies you develop or at least own a piece of it. Uh, with the potential to spin it out into a company. So that was something I was always interested in. My advisor at Georgia Tech, Bartun Nicola, he's a CEO of his own company, Carbice Nanotechnologies. They just raised $20 million uh, Series A uh, over this last summer. And so commercialization was always something on my radar. Um, And and we started exploring uh, the commercialization of our heat conducting polymers. and, And that's really what we we were focusing on the lab was creating polymers that conduct heat like metals, essentially, where, whereas polymers are typically thermally insulating. Um, and we, we went through several um, government-funded programs, and we started to see some commercial interest. We, we, we started just talking to a lot of people in industry, and eventually we got to the 3D printing space, but that's, that's not where we started. Did, did you wait? Sorry, did you end up making polymers that, that can conduct heat? Yeah, that that's really the focus of my PhD work was actually changing the. Conduction. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yes. Changing the structure of of polymers and polymer composites um, to make them conduct heat uh, better, make make them more thermally conductive because polymers themselves aren't actually they don't have to inherently be thermal insulators. It just comes down to how the, uh, the polymer chains are organized at, at a very small scale, nanoscale. And so if you can start to incorporate filler materials, you can start to change the structure 
of those polymers, you can actually make them conduct heat very well. When you say very well, just to get a comparison, like, like I assume not as well as like copper, but is there another metal that, that you would say is a comparable? I mean, I know I understand the properties of the material are also affected and stuff like that, but I'm just trying to get a sense of like what's um, an equivalent that, that would be more familiar with. Yeah, our, the materials that we're commercializing and what you see sort of as the state of the art for composite polymers is more in the range of stainless steel. So you, Okay, you have, that's still, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of in the middle. Copper is at the high end of the spectrum at around 400 watt per meter Kelvin. Virgin polymers are polymers with no fillers and, and no structural changes to them. Uh, just, just kind of standard off-the-shelf polymers. They're around 0.2 watts per meter Kelvin. And then the thermally conductive composite materials and our materials can come in anywhere from like 5 to 25 watt per meter Kelvin. So that middle range around stainless steel. Cool. At what temperatures do they, you know, transition? You can make these types of composites out of a lot of different polymer um, matrix. So it really depends on what type of polymer you're working with. We've focused on more so the, the flexible um, thermoplastic polyurethane type polymers. And so those are inherently tough, um, but they do start to uh, be susceptible to temperature changes and mechanical losses around 80 to 100 degrees Celsius. So we just focus on applications where they're not going to be used above that temperature. And so, so like the problem with that is that to me, there's a lot of whiz bang there. Well, wait a minute, we've got polymers that behave like metals, but also there's like, but there's like, there's so many areas you could apply that to. That would be like super complicated to commercialize that afterwards. You know, that was a big learning experience for us. We've looked at so many different um, applications, uh, re really free, Three high-level focus areas that, that we've looked at are thermal management of electronics, so creating things like heat sinks and, and electronics casing to pull heat away from electronic devices, uh, mold tooling, so 3D printing mold tools that can heat up and cool down faster because they're thermally conductive can, and can also have longer service life compared to traditional plastics. And then the third application is heat exchangers, which heat exchangers itself is a massive market of all different types and so we've really focused down to a specific type of heat exchanger where it's an air-to-air -air heat exchanger and that's where our x panel energy recovery product um that's the category that fits under are you you're able to injection mold this material as well correct yep you you are able to injection mold it and there are other commercially available thermally conductive pellets on the market and so we're we re where we really differentiate is the ability to 3D print it. And that's why we're focusing on applications to where you're creating geometries that can't be made right. in traditional manufacturing methods. Um, and so very specifically, once again, that's why we've chosen this um, air to air heat exchanger, the, the energy recovery application, because you can make these geometries that are really thin walls and that are, um, designed in these cellular patterns that you can't do in traditional manufacturing. You know, you've done this invention, but how did you find the money to continue this? You've got a lot of grants, right? So, so you, you really got all these SBIR grants, all these kind of things that must've been quite difficult to do or a lot of work, right? Correct. Yeah. We've, um, we've been quite fortunate to get um, a lot of government funding to help support our commercialization efforts. 
coming out of grad school, well, even during grad school, we started with the NSF I-Corps grant, um, which was basically $50,000 just to talk to in- people in the industry, just to travel around, talk to people in the industry about our technology to figure out how to apply it. Um, and then from there, we, a- after graduate school, um, I participated in the Innovation Crossroads program at Oak Ridge National Labs, which was a two-year fellowship program to work with all the researchers at Oak Ridge National Labs to to continue to enhance the formulation as well as figure out the best way to apply the material. And then after that program, we've been a part of the SBIR program for the Department of Energy and National Science Foundation. And so we've had two phase one and two phase two SBIR awards to those two organizations. It's really supported all of our development and commercialization efforts. Yeah, and and if you if I was a startup and I was like looking to get money from these kind of things, what would you advise? What would your advice be to me? How do how do I get that kind of money? Well, definitely, f- first thing I'd find someone to help you who's won them before. I think that's probably the most valuable thing you can do, whether it's an advisor or a consultant. Uh, we we probably applied to at least five or six before we won our first one, and I think that's pretty common. It just takes a lot of time to to figure out how to actually win these awards. Um, that, that would probably be most important. And then making sure that the solicitations that you apply for actually match your technology and your direction very well. I think a lot of people go into the solicitations and just try to fit something that, that broadly fits to a specific program because a lot of these SBIR programs have um, really detailed descriptions of what they're looking for. So just making sure you find a program that's really well aligned with your technologies is a big help also. You know, what kind of time goes into this? I mean, like if we're looking at an SBIR grant, which probably shouldn't be your first stop, right? You, you should probably have be a little bit more established for getting that kind of money. But, you know, how much time goes into something like that? You can, you can start, just to clarify, you can start with phase one SBIR grants, um, not all programs are the same between NSF, DOE, and DOD, but especially the DOD, they have they award a lot of phase one SBIR grants to companies that don't have a lot of traction or maybe just even formed themselves as a company. So as long as you can find someone to help you write a strong proposal, you don't need a lot of traction or anything like that to win one of these grants. So it is possible. Um so just to clarify that point, and then can you remind me what was the what was the, the part of your question or what was your question there? No, how much work goes into this? I mean, is it, are we talking like you know weeks, months, one person? Like, you know, how, how difficult is it to do? Yeah, it's it's about a month's worth of time to to get a, a SBIR proposal together um, with with you know two people working on it. It's probably about a month's worth of time to put a strong proposal together, especially if you haven't done it before. On the one hand, it does mean that you get you get quite a lot of money. You've got multiple, like I think, over, over a million dollar grants and stuff. Like so, that means you're kind of free from well, free from investors and other kind of pressures like that you'd have, uh, and you don't give a part of your company away. But again, you are kind of stuck into the reporting part of that uh, grant as well, right? Correct. Yeah, you do have reporting requirements that can be quarterly or annual um, reports that are due and. It's not too burdensome. It is a, I understand why it's a necessary part of the grants. Uh, it does take some time, but in general, it's helpful to sort of um, help you assemble what you've accomplished and kind of look at things from a higher um, level a couple times a year. 
And the other part of it too is the program managers, at least from our experience, are typically pretty flexible. So we all understand as a early stage commercial entity and startup, you're going to have to change what you're doing probably pretty frequently as you get feedback in the market and learn what's going on. And from our experiences, the program managers are pretty flexible and understand when um, you need to maybe pursue a different direction than what you actually put into your proposal. They're number one priorities to try to help you be successful commercially. Um, so that's, that's really uh, important part of the program. Who owns the IP then as a result? Like, is it shared in some sense or is it completely your company's IP when you do it? And like, I know I've done defense department stuff in the past and it's questionable, <laughs> but I'm wondering if for the kind of stuff you're talking about, who, who gets the rights to it? We own the IP and, and all the patents we file are under the company. And then we report that to the DOD and the NSF, or sorry, the DOE and the NSF. There is a little nuance with our, our DOE grant. It's actually not an SBIR, it's an STTR. So we're in, it's, a, it's a collaboration with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Um, and so in that case, uh, the IP that's developed is sort of jointly owned between us and NREL um, for, for that specific grant. Yeah. There is, yeah, there, there are, there is some confusion around um, the actual, like who at the end of the day, if the government could come in and say, no, we funded this, we want to actually take over and own this patent. I do think there is some clause there that, that could be a potential under special circumstances, but I don't think that ever really happens from, from my understanding. Um, and so, yeah, to be honest, I don't, I don't even remember the nuances of that, but as of, as it stands now, everything that we've done through the SBIR program is either owned by us outright or in collaboration with, uh, NREL basically split jointly between us and NREL. And what was it like doing this incubator thing at Oak Ridge? Because working at Oak Ridge, I mean, dude, that would just be amazing. Like all the toys and the stuff they have. But also, I would kind of feel very stupid there, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, Oak Ridge was, um, was really amazing um, getting to work directly with um, Dr. Vlasenil Kunch and, Kunk and uh, um, several different researchers there that are really – well-known in the space, especially of the large area out of manufacturing. Um, Brian Post as well. It was a great experience learning about the different applications that they're looking at for the large area. A lot of mold tooling type applications um, that they've really focused on and then some other unique things. And then just getting their feedback on printability and you know where to apply the material and then even collaborating on several different projects. We started a, a heat exchanger project as well in collaboration with Oak Ridge and some other researchers. So yeah, that, that was an awesome experience. And for what TC probably does, it was really the perfect place to be at the time. But then on the downside, I think a lot of people think, oh, wow, okay, you, you kind of get coddled by government. Are you then ready for like the big bad world of commerce? <laughs> yeah, you know? right. yeah. And that's a pretty common thing in, in the, the world of startups that are able to successfully, um, pursue SBIR grants and these other types of funding opportunities. Uh, one of our advisor it described it as the SBIR spiral of death, where you 
it's like what you said, you get coddled by these grants, but you never are really finding your true place commercially. Um, and so that's definitely something that happens and you can fall victim to. And so for us, we've really just from the get go, you know, even just selling our filaments have really tried to make a push to, to find where we can scale commercially. In a lot of ways, we're still looking for that. We're really excited about the energy recovery, heat recovery application. And we've done some early pilots and we're seeing a lot of promise in this space and it seems to be a, a growing space. So we're, we're pushing hard in it, but that's really the past couple of years has been what we've done as a company is just try to explore these different applications to see where we can scale. And, and talk us through your filament because I think uh, it's important to know that you have, well, you sell pellets, right? And you sell filament and it's also, you can do this with a nylon and a TPU, right? So this is actually, actually, your secret sauce technology stuff. Could you tell us a little bit how that works? Because you can actually, yeah, it's not like, it's not like one filament. You can apply it to certain technologies, right? Correct. Yeah, we can apply it to different um, base polymers. And so it's a, it's just a combination of, of filler particles that we know when we mix in them in there, they'll enhance the thermal conductivity of the, of the composite itself. And then also when you print the material, um, you can get further enhancement in the thermal conductivity. And we, we published a paper on this in collaboration with Oak Ridge, but essentially the, during the extrusion process, you can get preferential alignment of both the filler particles and the polymer chains that also then enhances the thermal conductivity of the printed part in the direction of printing. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a unique filler combination that we compound in to the polymers and then we make the, pellets based on that composite and then we extrude the pellets into filaments and that's why we sell both the, the pellets and the filaments so is that but if it's extruded into a filament is the alignment kind of set or are these kind of like is the composite like all over the place is it essentially random um it, in the filament it's going to have a certain degree of alignment but what really dictates the final properties of the end printed part comes more down to the details of how you print the part with both your tool path direction because the thermal conductivity of the material itself is is really direction dependent on on how you print it and then what also plays a role but lesser than just strictly your tool path is also things like your nozzle diameter and temperature and, and print speed and, and things like that because that also is going to dictate how your particles and, and polymer chains align during the printing process and so our data sheets provide general guidelines there um, but you do have some flexibility to to control things on your own. So you could screw with all those settings to result in different properties. You could, yep. I'm not saying you're recommending it, but no. <laughs> no, but that does also mean, like for a heat sink, you could change per layer even or per part of the print. You could change these, yeah, exactly. So you could change the, the properties throughout the heat sink uh, without even perhaps even changing wall thickness or stuff like this, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, you said that very matter of fact. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I, think, I think everybody needs to take a moment and get their head around that for a second. <laughs> is this something that you guys have done, Adam? or is or you're like this is we've been doing this for years? You guys are so far behind. <laughs> no, we. I mean, we've um, what we've essentially done is is focused on with a given nozzle diameter and, and print settings, what's our thermal conductivity as a function of the print orientation. So when you print a part, you'll have a thermal conductivity in the direction of the print line. So 
that's always going to be your highest thermal conductivity. That's your in-plane thermal conductivity. And then when you start stacking lines, print lines side by side, you have a cross-plane thermal conductivity. So if you think about the thermal conductivity perpendicular to those print lines, that's your cross-plane thermal conductivity. So that's going to be your second highest thermal conductivity. And then your lowest thermal conductivity is when you print the lines on top of each other vertically, and then you measure the thermal conductivity through those print layers, essentially, that's your, that's your through plane thermal conductivity, and that's going to be your lowest thermal conductivity. And so what we've done is characterize those different thermal conductivity values in each direction. And so when we go to print a part, we know how to optimize the tool path to have the best thermal performance in the part. Because we can say, okay, where's, where are we trying to move heat and how do we need to print this part then to move heat most efficiently based on our knowledge of the different thermal conductivity? You know, you also have a, and I don't know if you guys have run into this, I've run into this issue previously, but because you have a, a conduct, a heat conductive material that you're extruding, um, does it suck more, you know, heat out of the, the print head if you're using like a, a, whatever we're calling now, an FDM. I know there's an FFA or whatever the new terminology is for. Um, but if we're using like a, that kind of printer is because you're using TPU, right. As a sub, as a binder, if you will. So I would assume that it's, it's sucking down more heat, so to speak. Well, in a way, yeah, I guess you could think about it as it, as it can consume the, the thermal energy faster because it, because it's thermally and then cre- and creep up the creep up the spool, if you will, or keep cre- you know, does it not? <laughs> it, no, yeah, it certainly can. Yeah, so the heat the heat would be would move up the filament further in comparison to a non thermally conductive filament. So that can certainly cause you issues. But the big advantage there is that it because it's thermally more thermally conductive and it can essentially take in that heat power faster it also melts faster and so that means you could print it faster um because you don't run into the issue when you're trying to run it through the extruder fast to where with some virgin polymers or or non-thermally conductive polymers you can only if you're running it through the the nozzle very quickly maybe only the surface melts but the whole the heat actually can't travel through the rest of the polymer fast enough right but with our material, it can actually melt faster. So theoretically, you can also print it faster. How much does your material cost? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty pricey. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Forget that idea. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's on par with other engineered... No, no, I, I get yeah. that. I get that. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not going to make it's it cheaper than wearable peak. out of it. It's cheaper than peak. <laughs> Cheaper than peak. Cheaper than peak. That's good. That's a good yeah, one. That's good, right? Yeah. Um, but um, uh, okay. So, so if we're looking, and, and what printer can I put this on? You, you try this on a lot of printer, but you can use quite simple printers for this, right? Correct. Yeah. One of our favorite printers is the um, uh, Creality CR10, uh, the the V3. The, the, really, the crowd, the new, the new Creality's that are coming out that have the direct drive systems, and then the dual. The sprite type extruder where it's the dual gear um, those are very good for flexible materials and so you know most of those printers are less than a thousand bucks and 
we print on those all the time. And, and what are people doing on this? Because that's what I think. What are your customers doing? Well, it really does fall under those three categories of the heat exchangers, heat sinks, and mold tooling. So um, electronics cooling, printing parts like heat sinks and electronics casing to pull heat off the devices, heat exchangers, so, so printing all different types of heat exchangers. I mentioned our commercial focus is shifting towards the air-to-air heat exchanger side, but... Um, you know, there's liquid to air, liquid to liquid, all different types of heat exchangers. You know, for the electronics cooling, plastics offer the, the ability of having the design freedom and, and light weighting, which is typically important for electronics cooling customers. And also the fact that it doesn't conduct electricity that well can be a big advantage. For the heat exchangers, it's typically corrosion resistance, light weighting, and design freedom. You know, the, the important drivers there. Mold tooling, we're not doing as much anymore because we've started to focus more on the flexible materials. And so obviously you're not going to print flexible molds for most applications, but um, when we were more involved in that, (laughs) (laughs) when we were more involved in that, it was, um, we, we were printing molds for, we, we explored some like just standard injection mold tools to where, as I mentioned earlier, thermal conductivity helps it heat up and cool down faster. So that can be important for cycle time in molding. And then also um, an area we looked at pretty extensively was lost foam molding. So basically making styrofoam parts where you inject these styrofoam beads and then you inject hot steam and gas into the mold to expand the beads. And so once again, their thermal conductivity helps the heat dissipate and the part cool faster. And then it being a plastic tool, um, you, have, you have more design freedom and you can prevent corrosion and things like that in the tool. And for these applications, who are they doing? Is it like a really small specialized lab? Is it like an aerospace company? Who are the type of people that are that are using this filament? We've worked with a, a very broad spectrum of customers and it's mostly still within R&D labs and, and development groups. But I mean, we've worked with automotive manufacturers, like big names in automotive. Um, we've worked with aerospace companies. We've worked with several companies doing electric um, aviation applications. So, um, you know, well-known names in that field. Um, we've worked with large heat exchanger manufacturers. So like large air cooling t- tower manufacturers and, and HVAC component manufacturers that are looking at different ways to make heat exchangers. Um, and, and what we found going through this process is, and I think this is what a lot of people have found in the added the space recently is that, you know, it's difficult to get customers to actually go to production and get out of the R and D phase with 3d printing in general. But for our case, especially true when you're also trying to introduce a new material. And so we, we got into this cycle a lot of times where we're, we have customers in R and D that are buying small quantities of our materials and they're testing and playing around with it, but it just wasn't seeming like it's going to be something that was going to scale anytime soon. And that's why we as a company shifted our focus as well to try to start focusing on making our own products. So we don't have to necessarily wait for someone else to figure out how to make a really effective product with our material. We know the material better than anyone. We know how to print it better than anyone. So let's just, prove its value and make a, a product that, that fits the technology well, both 3D printing and our material properties. And that's what got us into 
focusing on these air-to-air heat recovery heat exchangers. Yeah, so I think this is really interesting advice. And it's interesting that you guys came here and, and I'm telling like nearly all my clients, whether they're a materials company, an OEM or anyone, a service bureau, anyone, I'm just saying, you know, you should think of doing end use. Really simple, click a button, buy, buy a heat exchanger here, kind of a value proposition. So just have a heatexchangers.com, whatever, buy a heat exchanger. How big is it? What do you want? What does it need to properties? We'll ship it to you for you know, 800 bucks on on Wednesday. And I think that's just a much faster way to get to the market. And you're right. You just get stuck. You get stuck in these companies. You're trying to, uh, you know, have conversations with people that think you're like the scariest thing ever. And it just, yeah, it's really, really tough going. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw a lot of that, like I was saying, firsthand. And so um, this, this space, this air to air heat recovery space is, is really interesting. And there's a lot of reasons why, 3D printing makes sense there from my perspective. And then also why making them using our materials makes sense there. So it seems like a, a great fit. And I'm, I'm sure as you've seen on our website and some of the materials that we've posted, you know, we started some pretty large scale pilots. We have a, we have a pretty big system that's processing 10,000 cubic feet per minute of air on, on a big commercial building in downtown Atlanta right now. That was project itself was about 250 kilograms of our material that we 3d printed these heat exchangers for um and so you know it's a it's a big it's a big application that has a lot of potential and i think the technology is a great fit for it and, and do you envision yourself of course it's too early to tell of course but do you envision yourself developing like a dozen more applications like this or do you envision yourself like uh or, or is it just the idea of like you know pitching this getting it started and then you know some hvac company ends up being your partner yeah i mean i think it can go either way i i think that our focus is going to stay in this space and so you know really starting with this energy recovery heat recovery side and i i see a lot of potential as well in in 3d printing these ducting and ventilation components to make the whole system customizable because because what we're doing is we're going in and we're finding commercial buildings that currently exist that are, if you go up on the roof, essentially they have a mechanical ventilation system. So they're forcing exhaust air out and bringing in fresh air all day to keep the building's air stream fresh. And what a lot of these buildings do currently, especially in the Southeast, is they just dump the exhaust air out to the atmosphere. And then they have the the intake air running all day. So the exhaust air that's getting pushed out, it's dirty, but it's been conditioned. You know, in the summer times it's been cooled, dehumidified, and the winter times it's been heated. And so we just connect those two airstreams and put a heat exchanger between them so that the air getting pulled into the building is essentially preconditioned. So you're bringing in preconditioned fresh air so you don't have to waste a bunch of energy reconditioning it. And so what's nice about the 3D printing side is when you go up there on the roof, we have to put in our heat exchangers, but we also have to create a ducting system to connect those two ports. And that can be pretty expensive to get all this custom sheet metal fabricated. So what I'm starting to see now is is a high potential kind of expansion. What we're doing is also printing these large ducting systems that then we duct our heat exchangers into. And so you can go up there on any roof where the, where the, intake and exhaust are located at different positions and they're shaped differently 
And using 3D printing, you go up there and make a custom system really quickly at, at no added cost because that's the design freedom of 3D printing compared to traditional manufacturing. So that's already one area where I see this expanding into. And then, you know, from there, what we're working on with NRAIL is actually incorporating thermal energy storage into the system. So we're not just actually recuperating and, and recapturing some of this energy to make it more efficient. We can put into our system materials that actually store thermal energy. So you can store heat, um, say, say it's warm during the day when the sun's out, but it gets really cold at night. You can actually store heat in some of these materials and then release it at night. And so, yeah, I see a lot of interesting ways to expand, but within this really specific application of improving energy efficiency and reducing energy use in these commercial buildings. What are the cost savings? What, what, what are you able to discuss on, on that kind of thing? For the, um, the install, the big pilot we have in downtown Georgia, right, or in, in downtown Atlanta right now, um, we estimate that that's going to save, and what we're seeing is it's probably going to save the building owners about ten to 15000 per year, which gets your return on investment in you know three to four years, basically return on investment on the system. And you can, the system, because we're printing it out of these materials that are these plastics that you know are meant to last for a long time, you could easily have a 15 to 20 year life on the system. So um, it's a lot of savings uh, over the lifetime of the system, and it's a pretty fast return on investment um, f- for the customers. Is it you? Could you, could you do this in literally any building, or only large buildings, or also houses? What's the the the, the, the art area here? We're focusing on these this this um, uh, yeah, more niche application, or not even niche, but more focused application of finding these commercial buildings that currently are set up to where they're doing mechanical ventilation and they don't have any type of energy recovery system. So they're just blowing out exhaust air and bringing in fresh air. And there's a good amount of of buildings out there that currently do that. But this type of technology, this, or this type of strategy, energy recovery, it can be applied to almost any commercial building nowadays, because everyone's, especially after COVID, everyone's upping how much, um, mechanical ventilation they're doing on buildings and it's actually becoming code more and more where you have to uh, really implement this um, at a high level in heavily occupied buildings to keep the air clean inside the building yeah, um, so the- and it's also being sorry and the last thing it's also expanding a lot in homes too because homes are now becoming more airtight more insulated and so when you make it a home very airtight to make it energy efficient you have to do some sort of mechanical ventilation or you're just going to hold in a bunch of stale stale air all day. So the home market's also um, expanding a lot for this type of application. Yeah, so the total adjustable market is absolutely immense, right? And also looking at this from a material vendor, you know, a couple of hundred kilos of material per installation. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of uh, little itty bitty electronics heat sinks to, 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 to add up to that, right? Uh, correct, so correct, the part, yeah. the part thing is, I, I, I thought this, I saw this really fascinating thing the other day. There was a Echo Elf, which is a Spanish, um, it's a, it's a clothing brand. Their, their thing is like, there is no planet B, right? No. It's like, it's like environmentally friendly. So they made a store interior for one of their stores. It's not a huge brand. It's a great brand. I have a sweater of theirs on the moment, but it's not huge, right? It's not like Ralph Lauren, but they have 70 stores, right? They made one store using 3d printing of this internal kind of, uh, um, you know, the, the, the shelving of the system and they use 3.3 tons of material. 
<laughs> and that just like compared to all the other 3D printing applications just for one store is just huge. So I think you guys as well have found something that is is the total addressable market is far, far larger, like hundreds if not thousands of times larger than the 3D printing market. But also at the same time as a materials vendor, the total tonnage is much more than you would expect to send to sell in 3D printing for a really long time. Correct. Yeah, especially if we start printing these large ducting systems. I mean, it's a ton of material. And I, I could even see a world in where you're maybe like mass producing the heat exchangers one way and then printing the ducting because it's, you know, it's faster to mass produce the heat exchangers and, and um, faster to also make the ducting so that it's adaptable to any environment. Um, Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you could do it, which is an interesting, so it's an interesting model because you're, you care more about the material at the end of the day than how it's necessarily being done. You know, if we go further down that path, we would probably have a whole farm of smaller printers printing the actual heat exchangers and then right. a couple large pellet fed printers that are printing the ducting components because you don't need you don't need to print those on small diameter nozzles and, and print thin print lines and things like that. Right. And but you do and you're you, but you are exposed to the directly to an outside environment in, in this on some level. Correct. Right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. But plastics, you know, especially when they're formulated right, do really well. And they do they do better than metals a lot of times uh, in those situations. But then, then the other question is like, what are you going to print it on, right? Right. Yeah. So what, what printers are out there? What are you looking at? Are you looking at like kind of, you can have medium format kind of systems and stuff like that. Uh, but that, in the face of this ducting type of stuff, is is you know, are you looking at these big robot arm kind of things? What do you what do you consider? We haven't got there yet to to be able to justify an investment in, in those types of printers but we're we're pretty familiar especially with my work at Oak Ridge, we're pretty familiar with the larger format type systems out there you know i know the the titan robotics guys and they were recently acquired by i think 3d systems but even marshall miller who's the lead application engineer on their large-scale printers i like the titan pellet fed printers those are th those would be definitely adequate size to print the ducting systems um, the, uh, and, and basically you'd print them in parts and snap them together, just the same way Churchill ducting's done now, just to clarify there. So we wouldn't need to print a 20 foot part continuously, but you could, but you could, <laughs> you could, yeah. Um, yeah, several different pellet fed type printers would printing systems, um, the BAMs, um, from Cincinnati, you know, all, all those types of printers would work well for the application. You know what people call these systems? The large scale systems from the U.S. They call them the Bamily. Bamily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're all the Bam systems from all these like uh, uh, the Tennessee yeah, Oakland nice. affiliated guys. They call them the Bamily. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I've heard, I thought that was. I've heard Bam. Uh, I've heard Bamily. <laughs> no, yeah, Bamily is like for all the guys, Thurmwood and all these other dudes, Cincinnati, sure. all yeah. those guys. Um, uh, but anyway, so so. Uh, and what's your go-to market then? I'm like, now you're doing a pilot. So what are you going to do? Are you going to partner people? Look for you look for you know individual building owners. How do you foresee? Yeah, them? right now we're reaching out to um, a couple different categories there. But um, you're you're exactly right. Building owners being one, and more specifically, like the the engineers for for the building ownership groups that actually have engineers in house that manage the facilities and manage the buildings reaching out to those groups directly. There's a lot of um, energy management firms that, that do that on a contract basis for building owners. So they'll actually come in and manage the building for the building owners. So, so reaching out to those types of firms. 
And then also these firms that are like energy efficiency consulting firms where they go to building management groups and specifically say, hey, like here's this new technology that you could apply here cost effectively to reduce your energy use annually by this much. And so we're, we're now starting to utilize the pilot and the positive data we've gotten off the pilot to reach out to these groups to try to get some more traction um, going. Okay. And then, and, uh, and the thing is that you can also try to fly a helicopter like FLIR or something over a city and just see who's emitting the most heat, right? Uh, just, just to find out the, the most interesting no, that's, building. That's, that's a great and, point. Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have a drone and I've already started doing that. Like I find buildings around Atlanta and I'll bring the drone over there just to get up and see what type of equipment they have on the roof. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's I'm a good that. idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Potential customer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can buy the satellite. You can buy satellite images and get someone else to look yeah. at it. Yeah. I mean, my, I feel like all of New York City yeah. could, uh, could use yeah. this tech right away. So. Yeah. My dream customer acquisition technology, if we could do, which I just would think would be amazing, would be to do basically what you said, get a satellite image, look at the roof, get a high-resolution satellite image, be able to tell the amount of air that they're spitting out every day and for how long and basically generate a, a digital immediately a digital like 3d printed structure that you could overlay over there and just send it to the customer and be like hey this is what the system would look like here's how much energy we would save you every year and just do that all before you even contact the customer and send it right to them um, you could do that though you could, you could get by the imagery and then, because the thing is, you just need to see how well, how many ins air conditioning units they have on the Correct. roof. Yeah, right? and get an idea. So, so that's a proxy. It's like 10, 10 or 8 or whatever. You can get a proxy. And then you can just get, like, on Amazon Mechanical Turk or something, you just get guys to count them. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, uh, that, that would be a thing, I think. But I think, I think, and I think, I like the idea that you're going direct. I think that's really, really nice. And I like the idea, because there's also a lot more potential to design all these ducts, right? Because these are just like, these are designed like the 1880s or something crazy, right? Uh, for steel panel ducting, and they're super inefficient Correct. as they're well. They're very right? leaky. Um, they're a complete pain in the ass to assemble. I mean, we've learned that firsthand because this pilot was very hands-on for us. You know, you're cutting your fingers. You're trying to cut holes into it. It's 95 degrees up there. It's hard to do custom designs. We had alignment issues. Yeah, it's just it's an old industry that has not changed in a long time as you mentioned and i see a lot of value even just in for the people that assemble the ductwork if you could come up there with more customized things that snap together easily and aren't cutting your hands and aren't leaking everywhere and wasting a bunch of energy you're not using like tin shears in order to like make adjustments <laughs> correct yeah <laughs> And also, I think one other thing is what I've noticed is like um, is that car companies and, and big international brands and stuff like that are really taking this environmental stewardship much more serious. I thought it was like kind of I always thought it was always greenwashing kind of, and now you're really seeing these people are really taking this much more seriously. And and uh, to me, like like a branded car factory and operation center, like those guys are all about this kaizen stuff, and, and they would really kind of like look at this and be like, oh, okay, wait, free. You know, free energy savings, let's say, like in the, like and big, large factories. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah, PR on top of it, but also th that's their mentality, right? A building owner is less focused on this, this uh, continual uh, improvement than, than a factory mm -hmm. guy, you know? No, that, that's that's definitely true. It's um, Yeah, that, that is true. And, and there's definitely changing tide there with people being more 
conscious about the energy savings and, and valuing that more than just for the cost effectiveness um, of reducing your energy waste there. So that's a positive momentum change that's happening right now for us. No, exactly. And are you going to be looking like, for example, in Europe, the, every building has an energy label. People take this really seriously. Are you thinking of expanding this internationally or are you really going to focus on the U.S. for now? Um, no, we would definitely, if we're, if we're successful in the U.S. market, I, I agree there would be, seems there would be tremendous potential also in the European market just because they value the energy efficiency side probably more so than even most people in the U.S. do. Okay. And where do you hope to be in like like five years? Or what do you hope to achieve uh, up until then? Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope in five years that we're um, gotten a lot of commercial traction in this space, that we've expanded beyond just the custom retrofits to proving ourselves to be valuable in new installs as well. Um, I would hope that we'd expand to at least several cities in the U.S. where we're doing significant amount of impact essentially you know putting enough of these systems on to where we're really building up a massive impact on the amount of energy that the buildings are using if we'd be that at that point in five years and we're also you know successful in printing the heat exchangers and we've expanded into being able to have systems in-house to print these large duct systems and we have everything kind of down to a science and efficient you know i'd feel really good about that that would make me quite happy about our impact and what we've accomplished Okay, man. Well, uh, here's hoping that uh, you can make that a reality. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I, I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the uh, invitation. And thank you for being here, Max. As always, George. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.